Welcome to Bible Study for Regular People. I'm Tana. Let's get started. First, in case there's any background noise, that is because it is at the moment 9 o'clock at night and still 63 degrees outside and it hasn't really cooled off yet inside my house. So I have to have the window open. So there may be background noise this episode. I have no idea. But we're starting in Psalm 86. The theme is devoted trust in times of deep trouble. And of course, it's by David. Verse 1. Bend down, O Lord, and hear my prayer. Answer me, for I need your help. Protect me, for I'm devoted to you. Save me, for I serve you and trust you. You are my God. Be merciful uh, be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am calling on you constantly. I am calling on you constantly. I love that. Verse 4. Give me happiness, O Lord, for I give myself to you. O Lord, you are so good, so ready to forgive, so full of unfailing love for all who ask for your help. Listen closely to my prayer, O Lord. Hear my urgent cry. I will call to you whenever I'm in trouble, and you will answer me. No pagan god is like you, O Lord. None can do what you do. All the nations you made will come and bow before you, Lord. They will praise your holy name. For you are great and perform wonderful deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may live according to your truth. Grant me purity of heart so that I may honor you. With all my heart, I will praise you, O Lord, my God. I will give glory to your name forever, for your love for me is very great. You have rescued me from the depths of death. O God, insolent people rise up against me. A violent gang is trying to kill me. You mean nothing to them. But you, O Lord, are a God of compassion and mercy, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Look down and have mercy on me. Give your strength to your servant. Save me, the son of your servant. Send me a sign of your favor. Then those who hate me will be put to shame. For you, O Lord, help and comfort me. In Proverbs, we're starting chapter 19, verse 1. Better to be poor and honest than to be dishonest and a fool. The commentary on this says, A blameless life is far more valuable than wealth, but most people don't act as if they believe this. Afraid of not getting everything they want, they will pay any price to increase their wealth, cheating on their taxes, stealing from stores or employers, withholding tithes, refusing to give. But when we know and love God, we realize that a lower standard of living, or even poverty, is a small price to pay for personal integrity. Do your actions show that you sacrifice your integrity to increase your wealth? What changes do you need to make in order to get your priorities straight? Are we sacrificing our integrity and our love of God for wealth? And again, that verse said, better to be poor and honest than to be dishonest and a fool. Verse 2. Enthusiasm without knowledge is no good. Haste makes mistakes. I need to read that again. Enthusiasm without knowledge is no good. Haste makes mistakes. I feel like that one was written for me. (laughs) 
sometimes I get excited about an idea and I go for it and then later I'm like oh that should have been thought out more there's a commentary on this we often move hastily through life rushing headlong into the unknown some people marry without really getting to know the other person others try illicit sex or drugs without considering the consequences some plunge into jobs without evaluating whether or not they are suitable to that line of work enthusiasm is no good without knowledge and it will not make a bad situation better don't rush into the unknown be sure you understand what you're getting into and where you want to go before you take the first step obviously you cannot tell all that the future will hold but do your homework ask the right questions and be sure you are following god i think that being said some people myself included at times fall to the other extreme of thinking 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 talking 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 planning 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 and never taking the action or taking action too slow and then missing an opportunity so I guess there's this sweet spot, right, where you are doing your homework to make good decisions, but not overdoing the homework, recognizing that even in big decisions, there will be unknowns. You're going to have to roll with it. And I don't think any one of us gets that sweet spot right every time. I think we all kind of hover one direction or the other. Maybe some of us more toward one direction more often than the other verse three. Oh, and let me reread verse two that was about enthusiasm without knowledge is no good haste makes mistakes verse three people people ruin their lives by their own foolishness and then are angry at the lord <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> oh i'm laughing because of very specific memory I can't share came to mind about someone else so I can't share someone else's stuff but yeah people ruin their lives by their own foolishness and then are angry at God for it verse 4 wealth makes many friends poverty drives them all away mmm it's so interesting when uh, you know like verse one, better to be poor and honest than to be dishonest and a fool. And then verse uh, four says, wealth makes many friends. And friends is in quotes, by the way. I should clarify that. Wealth makes many, quote unquote, friends. Poverty drives them all away. Right? The real friends are going to, they don't care. They don't care what money you have. <laughs> it's only the quote unquote friends that care about the money you have. Five, a false witness will not go unpunished, nor will a liar escape. Six, many seek favors from a ruler. Everyone is the friend of a person who gives gifts. Friends is not in quotes in that one. Seven, the relatives of the poor despise them. How much more will their friends avoid them? Though the poor plead with them, their friends are gone. It reminds me of so many of um, people I have worked with who had been incarcerated who talked about how as soon as they were locked up, they learned who their real friends were and which of their family members cared about them because people would disappear. Not right. Not talk to them. Not talk to them when they're out. Verse 8. 
To acquire wisdom is to love oneself. People who cherish understanding will prosper. The commentary on this says, it is good. Oh, sorry. This is a question. Is it good to love yourself? Yes. When your soul is at stake, this proverb does not condone self-centered people who love and protect their selfish interests that will do anything to serve them. Instead, it encourages those who really care about themselves to seek wisdom. I'll read it again. Verse 8. To acquire wisdom is to love oneself. People who cherish understanding will prosper. I like that. A false witness will not go unpunished and a liar will be destroyed. Now let's back up, lest you think I just accidentally lost my place and reread something. Verse 5 said, A false witness will not go unpunished. That's exactly the same how verse 9 starts. A false witness will not go unpunished. But then verse 5 ends with, Nor a liar escape. And verse 9 ends, and a liar will be destroyed. So a false witness will not go unpunished and liars will not escape. They will be destroyed. God is the final judge. He knows who is testifying truthfully and he knows who is lying under oath, putting other people's lives in jeopardy by it. He is not cool with that. Verse 10. It isn't right for a fool to live in luxury or for a slave to rule over princes. Hmm. Interesting. 11. Sensible people control their temper. They earn respect by overlooking wrongs. Man, that deserves a second read. Sensible people control their temple, their temper. <laughs> they earn respect by overlooking wrongs. I feel like that's so true when you apply that to a work environment. Right, control freak bosses who flip out over the tiniest mistake lose respect from their employees. But bosses that take the road of, hey, it's okay. Everybody makes mistakes. I do too. We got this. Let's fix this as a team. Whatever it is. Those are the bosses that earn respect by doing that. Because the bosses who jump down people's throats over every little mistake, their employees are watching for every little mistake that they make next. And they will because they're human too. Nobody's that perfect and consistent. Verse 12, the king's anger is like a lion's roar, but his favor is like dew on the grass. Hmm. 13, a foolish child is a calamity to a father. A quarrelsome wife is as annoying as constant dripping. Ew. 14. Fathers can give their sons an inheritance of houses and wealth, but only the Lord can give an understanding wife. Hmm. A wife, verse 13, is referring to, you know, better 
to have or be a wife of peace. And 14, a wife of understanding. Verse 15, lazy people sleep soundly, but idleness leaves them hungry. And with that, I'm about to go to sleep. In the New Testament, we're in Galatians 3. My Bible has a header here, so I'm going to read that. It's titled, The Superiority of the Gospel. The Galatians were beginning to believe the claims of the false teachers and turning from the gospel Paul had preached to a form of legalism. Paul reminds them that they began their life in Christ and received the Holy Spirit by faith, not by keeping the law. He then argues strongly, appealing to the Old Testament and the life of Abraham, that the good news revealed in Christ is far superior to the set of rules and regulations that the false teachers wanted people to submit to. The law served a purpose in God's plan, but in light of the good news of Jesus Christ, it was no longer the way to be a part of God's family. All people, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, and female, are children of God in Christ. In light of that, I'm interested to uh, refresh my memory on what Paul says about this, thinking back to what James said, which is faith without deeds is dead, right? What's going to be Paul's take on that? It's been a while since I've read it, so I don't remember. So it's always nice to read something with fresh eyes again. Here we go. Galatians chapter three, starting in verse one. Actually, let me do the refresher because I forgot to do that. Last time we read uh, where Paul was telling his story, how the apostles had accepted him, and then how he had had to confront Peter because Peter was trying to people please the Jewish Christians by refusing to eat with Gentile Christians. And Paul called him out on that. So that's what we read last time, now starting in chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your Christian lives in this spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It is because you believe the message you heard about Christ. In the same way, Abraham believed God and God counted it uh, God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures looked forward to this time when God would declare the Gentiles to be righteous because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. 
But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse for the scriptures say, Curses everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say, It is through faith that a righteous person has life. This way of faith is very different from the way of law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, Curses everyone who is hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham, so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Going through the commentary on this section, I'm going to read some on verse 5. Verse 5 said, I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It is because you believe the message you heard about Christ. Commentator writes, The Galatians knew that they had received the Holy Spirit when they believed, not when they obeyed the law. Remember, the Galatians didn't, they weren't Jewish, so they weren't previously following the law, but of course we had the uh, Judaizers trying to get them to follow the law. People still feel insecure in their faith because faith alone seems too easy. People still try to get closer to God by following rules. While certain disciplines, parentheses, Bible study, prayer, and service may help us grow, they must not take the place of the Holy Spirit in us or become ends in themselves. By asking these questions, Paul hoped to get the Galatians to focus again on Christ as the foundation of their faith. I like that. The way that they worded that there, you know, Bible study, prayer, service, uh, spiritual disciplines are fantastic for bringing us closer to God. Uh, knowing his word, getting his guidance, but they are not what saves us. Christ saves us because of our faith. And here's another gold nugget. The Holy Spirit gives Christians great power to live for God. Some Christians want more than this. They want to live in a state of perpetual excitement. The tedium of everyday living leads them to conclude that something is wrong spiritually. Often the Holy Spirit's greatest work is teaching us to persist, to keep on doing what is right, even when it no longer seems interesting or exciting. I love that. I think that shows the maturation of our faith. To be following Christ and doing good even when there's nothing super exciting, filling, or thrilling about it. It may seem tedious, but it's a lifestyle. And to not get sucked into feeling like we always have to be on some sort of mountaintop experience. That's just not realistic. Well, that's just my opinion. Take it or leave it. Whatever. 
Now continuing on, we're picking up in verse 15 of chapter 3. Dear brothers and sisters, here's an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, so it is in this case. God gave the promises to Abraham and his child, and notice that the scripture doesn't say to his children, as if it meant many descendants. Rather, it says to his child, and that, of course, means Christ. This is what I am trying to say. The agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would be breaking his promise. For if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise. But God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. Now, a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement, but God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin, so we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. And that's where we're going to stop. So I paused the recording, and if you ever wonder how I pick which commentary to read, that's how I just pause it. I read ahead on the commentary and pick whichever ones are good I want to share. So I prayed about this piece of scripture, asking God if there is anything he wanted to make clear. To me or whoever two three people that might listen to this you know <laughs> is there anything he wanted to emphasize here and I just took a moment to pause and listen and the response I got was I am the law I am the judge And so I'm going to share a few of the commentary and then reread this piece with that in mind of him saying, I am the law, I am the judge. This first piece of commentary is on verses 18 and 19, which said, for if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise. But God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. 
the commentary says the law has two functions. On the positive side, it reveals the nature and will of God and shows people how to live. On the negative side, it points out people's sins and shows them that it is impossible to please God by trying to obey all his laws completely. God's promise to Abraham dealt with Abraham's faith. The law focuses on actions. The covenant with Abraham shows that faith is the only way to be saved. The law shows how to obey God in grateful response. Faith does not annul the law, but the more we know God, the more we see how sinful we are. Then we are driven to depend on our faith in Christ alone for our salvation. I'm going to reread this and then we'll flip back to the promises. We'll flip back to Genesis to read the promise to Abraham and we'll flip back to Exodus to read where the law is given to Moses. So we know we've got the right context here. So going back to verse 15, dear brothers and sisters, here's an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, so it is in this case. God gave the promises to Abraham and his child. Footnote says the word translated there is seed. And notice that the scripture does not say to his children. Footnote says translation is seeds. Children is seeds. As if it uh, meant many descendants. Rather, it says to his child, same word. And that, of course means Christ. This is what I'm trying to say. The agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. So we're going to flip back to Genesis chapter 12. So what are the promises God gave to Abraham? He said, God said to Abraham, leave your native country Sorry, this is 12 verse 1. Your relatives and your father's family go to the land I will show you. I will. Here's promise number one. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. In shorthand, it goes on to say, I bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. So I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the families on earth will be blessed through you. And then verse 7, he says, I will give this land to your, my Bible translated it descendants. You go to the root word, it is seed. The same word used in Galatians. And then in verse, uh, uh, chapter Genesis 13, verse 14, he says, look as far as you can see in every direction, north and south, east and west. I am giving all this land as far as you can see to you and your seed as a permanent possession and I will give you so many descendants that like the dust of the earth they cannot be counted go and walk through the land in every direction for I am giving it to you so those are the promises to Abraham note back in chapter 12 verse 3 all the families on earth will be blessed through you. How in the world could he bless all the families on earth? 
that's a reference to Christ, of course. Let's go back to Galatians chapter 3. We just read verse 17. This is what I'm trying to say. The agreement of God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. So let's flip over to the law of Moses. We've read the promise to Abraham. We're going to the law of Moses. So it starts with the Ten Commandments. It gets bigger from there. In Exodus uh, chapter 19, he's telling them how to prepare to receive the law. And then in Exodus 20, he gives them the Ten Commandments. And we'll read those real quick. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. Here's command number one. You must not have any other God but me. Two, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me, but I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Number three, you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Command number four, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God on that day. No one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. So if anybody ever says to you, well, I obey the Ten Commands, be like, oh, really? Do you keep the Sabbath? Because <laughs> it's one of them. Command number five. Honor your father and mother. Then you will live a long, full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Command number six, you must not murder. Seven, you must not commit adultery. Eight, you must not steal. Nine, you must not testify falsely against your neighbor. And remember, we've been reading a lot in the Proverbs about how much God despises false testimony. And command number ten, you must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So now we have a refresher. Now that's how the law starts, is with the Ten Commandments and expands from there to proper use of altars and fair treatment of slaves. Now, if you don't already know, keep in mind, anywhere scripture refers to slaves, it is nothing like the horrific atrocities of historical U.S. slavery. It is nothing like that. It starts with, set your slave free after six years and he gets to keep his wife and take her, take his family with him. You know, like, it's usually more about uh, debt and it's for a limited time. They're kind of employed and then they're set free. Anyway, it's very different from U.S. slavery. So, there's our refresher on... The promises to Abraham, the laws to Moses, picking up in verse 17, God would be breaking his promise, meaning if the law canceled out the promise to Abraham, 
For if the inheritance could be received, the inheritance referring to the promise to Abraham of the land and the blessings and the whole world will be blessed through him. If the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise. He's saying, you're going to get it because I'm telling you I'm giving it to you. It's not like he changed his mind later and said, oh, nope, I take it back. Just kidding. Now you have to do all of these things in order to get it. Right? Paul's pointing it out. God doesn't work that way. But God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. And remember what God just said to me. He said, I am the law. I am the judge. And I think even the Ten Commandments are hard to follow. Then you add everything else. There's absolutely no way. And, and even people in, in, in Scripture talk about how nobody can, nobody could go their whole life. Never breaking one of these laws. I think it highlights how, I mean, the law is so, such a tiny, I mean, God just said, I am the law, but yet that's really such a tiny part of who he is and still no human can live up to it, right? There's no possible way we can live to the standard of God. We cannot be God. It goes on, but the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. The child who was promised to bless everyone on earth through Abraham. And of course, Jesus is the descendant of Abraham's line if you follow the, the family tree. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who is the mediator between God and the people, and one of the footnotes here said that the New Testament Christians interpreted the scriptures in Exodus that when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, it was an angel who gave them to him. I haven't refreshed that here recently, but that might be what it says. And that's what it's saying here. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. Now, a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement, but God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. This is like a reference to the Trinity right here. I'm just now noticing. God is the law. God made the promise. God's promising a child to come to fulfill the law to bless the entire world, and that child is also God. God who is one. Verse 21, is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declared that we are all prisoners of sin, so we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. He's saying, dudes, Jesus goes way back to the time of Abraham. God told us he was coming. There was way more in that promise 
than Abraham had any idea of. God is the law, and God is the judge.